Thank you so much, Highest Praised Orchestra. What a blessing all of this was this morning. Praise the Lord. Well, you've heard me confess a few times having a sense of inadequacy when coming to various biblical passages. Some passages are so rich, so vast, so deep that it's all but impossible to wrap one's arms around that text. Well, Romans 11, 33 to 36 is just such a passage. If you'd make your way to the book of Romans, chapter 11, the last four verses in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, a message I've titled, Proper Theology Produces Profound Doxology. The immediate context of chapter 11, 33 through 36, of course, is chapter uh, 11 itself. But really, the entire flavor of the passage harkens back to chapter 1, verse 1, and then all the way through chapter 11 as it focuses on the person and work of God in the gospel and the response of sinful man to the gospel. So let's read, let's look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. What a text. The idea of theology from the title deals with the person of God, who he is and what he has done. The idea of doxology, in fact, comes from the word found in verse 36, that is, glory. It's the response of man in praise to God for who he is and what he has done. So, so uh, this being found in the book of Romans, which is arguably the most important book in scripture relative to understanding what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be right with God, to be justified, to stand justified in his presence. The book of Romans speaks much about that. In fact, in the book of Romans, um, or, or speaking about the book of Romans, MacArthur calls Romans the preeminent doctrinal work in the New Testament. Now, that is quite a statement. Schofield adds, and he says, Romans can be likened to a great cathedral of Christian truth. He goes on to write, the book of Romans is rightly placed first among the epistles because it is the most complete exposition in the New Testament of the central truths of Christianity. More contemporary in our day, Max Lucado wrote, Romans is... <clears throat> Uh, the grandest treatise on grace ever written. You'll find the air fresh and the view clear. <laughs> Such a great, great way of expressing that. And in fact, we find that here at the end of chapter 11. Martin Luther, going back a few centuries, in fact, 500 years, says that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel coming back to our day. 
And Chuck Swindoll wrote that Romans is the clearest presentation of theology found anywhere in all of literature. It's one of the grandest books, if not the single most significant book, for Christians to explore and apply to their lives. And finally, John Calvin, uh, a hero of the faith um, of yesteryear, wrote, When anyone gains a knowledge of Romans, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And so the theme and the theology of the book of Romans is the glorious gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And that is explained um, and presented in great detail, especially in chapters 1 through 8, and then there's a parenthesis in chapters 9 through 11, dealing with the election of Israel before it closes out with this uh, great doxology based upon the theology that went in uh, just before it. And so the theme of glory from our text springs from the previous 11 chapters. Paul, and if you think about it, Paul had been a mountain climber in these 11 chapters. In fact, it's, it's, some, uh, it's some heavy uh, weight stuff in chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans. And he reached the theological summit. He reached the peak of Mount Everest, if you will. And what did he do? Well, he did what any of us would do after having climbed uh, to a mountain and reached the peak we would have a glory fit, amen? I've made it, this is it, can you believe it? And that's what the Apostle Paul, that was his expression at the end of chapter 11. So let's get into this text with three primary points if you're taking notes. First of all, we see in verse 33, a wonderful exclamation. He exclaims the wonder. He, he makes this exclamatory response, or he has that in his soul when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches. That, that very first word there is a particular um, uh, type of speech in the Greek New Testament. Uh, it's called vocative, uh, and it's, it's just uh, expressing over the top. It's more than he can actually express. All he can say is, Oh, or we might say, oh my, uh, that type of an idea. Can you, can you believe this? Get a load of this, the Apostle Paul said. Now, you'll remember that this was a letter to the believers at Rome. And so it was to be read straight through, just like a, a letter is, uh, is read. And so they started with chapter 1 and verse 1 and read through the end of chapter 11 to the point that Paul said, oh my, can you get a, a load of the depth of the riches? And it wasn't just referencing the grace of God only, but God himself. Folks, like an ocean, he, Paul said, God himself is too vast. God himself is too deep to fully take in. He is inexpressibly vast. He is inexpressibly deep. And the Apostle Paul came to that conclusion based upon orthodox theology, which had just been presented in the previous 11 chapters. How can you know who God is? How can you know who, how to respond to the true and living God? You respond and you know who he is based upon the actual black and white of the text of scripture. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. I, uh, I so um, appreciate uh, my, uh, my trophy bride, Kathy. We've been married just short of three years. 
And when I was widowed uh, a number of years ago and she first came to Redbridge, she came away and, and it took two or three visits, I guess. And she said, Vic, this is my perception of Redbridge Baptist Church. When I leave a worship service, I find that God is large in my heart and mind. Well, there could not have been any, and I didn't feed that to her. She said, in participating in the worship, in talking and visiting with the people, in hearing the preaching, in being in the Sunday school class, everything is about God being made big. Folks, it's about him. It's always been about him. It will always be about him. And not about me, not about you, not about any of us. Because I can't change a heart. You can't change the course of history. All you can do, all I can do, is humbly yield to his lordship and say, oh, the depth of how vast and how great God is. His majesty is uh, transcendent. It transcends anything and everything that there is in this world. And so Paul offered a wonderful exclamation. And then notice a couple of points in that verse, verse 33. We first see that God's intellect is too vast. Notice it says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That is the wisdom and knowledge in reference to the facts of the gospel. In chapters 1 through 11, we learn about God's omniscience regarding the sinful condition of man. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. God knew that. And he presented that chapter after chapter in this book, as well as presenting the gospel of the grace of God by faith in Christ to sinful man. And so in the gospel, we see that portion of the mind of God in salvation. In fact, Isaiah 55 refers to uh, that, prophesies of that. In verses 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so it's an issue of intellect. I've heard this. I'm not, I'm not sure that I've analyzed the theology of it, but, uh, but you'll understand uh, the gist of it. The salvation. The Father thought it. The Son bought it. The Spirit wrought it. That is, brought it to pass. The church taught it. Thank God I've got it. Amen? <laughs> and so it's all in the mind and heart of God. And He brought it to us. Aren't you grateful? Amen? Well, we also see at the end of verse 33 that God's interests are too deep, unsearchable. That is, the things he determines to do, the things that he has set his mind to do are unsearchable. It's a compound word which means cannot be discovered, cannot be scrutinized, cannot be analyzed. I can't empirically measure it or any such thing. All I can do is stand amazed in his presence and say, oh, the depth of the riches of his judgments and his ways past finding out. They're so deep, they're so vast, they're so wide, they're so high that no one can trace his steps. I just simply can sit back and wonder. Now, he has chosen to give us information, but do we imagine that the Word of God contains all there is to know about God? 
No, no, it's not an infinite uh, uh, document. That is, it doesn't record everything. In fact, John says many other things Jesus did in the presence of, of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So he did all kinds of things, and, and God has all kinds of facets that it will take eternity to turn that gem in every way it can be turned in order to see all of who he is. His interest, his ways are too deep. R. Kent Hughes wrote, Tracing God's ways in his dealings with man is as futile as tracking his footprints on the sea. <laughs> Let's see someone do that. Uh, Trish used to sing, When you can't trace his hand, is that it? What do you do? Trust his heart because you know he's all wise and you know he's all good. And so even though you can't figure out who God is entirely in all of his ways and all of his doings, you can sure trust who he is because you know him in a real and personal way. So a wonderful exclamation in verse 33. In verses 34 and 35, we see an insightful explanation, an insightful Explanation Verses 33 and 34 offer three explanations, three reasons, three declarations of amazement relative to God's wondrous riches, wisdom, knowledge. Three rhetorical questions are found in verses 34 and 35, all of which should provoke the very same answer. And the very answer should be no one. And so let's look at the first rhetorical question and it's found at the in the first part of verse 1 and it says in verse 34 um, for who hath known the mind of the Lord and the people of God says no one no one has ever been the mind of the Lord uh, known the mind of the Lord psychiatry cannot comprehend God psychiatry presumes to have measures of understanding of the human mind how we think but God cannot be scientifically, empirically measured. He can't be comprehended or figured out, not in his totality. Only by what he has revealed to us can we get just a scintilla of understanding of his grandeur, of his majesty, of his greatness. And so psychiatry is not going to be able to explain God to you. The very best that you can hope to do and that I can hope to do is study and study uh, throughout your entire life to, from his word to gain an understanding. And then notice in, at the end of verse 34, it says, or who have been his counselor? And the answer is no one. No one has ever counseled God. So psychology cannot counsel him. The best counsel of men is of no value to God. In fact, he's the one who gives counsel through his word. You know, this, this very verse is, uh, is referenced in Isaiah 40 and verse 13. So going back uh, seven to 800 years before this was written in Romans, Isaiah said the very same thing. Who has ever um, known the Lord? Who has ever been his counselor? Of course, no one can figure God out. Not on his own. It's only what is revealed in scripture. So we're given this insightful explanation 
to help us understand the previous 11 chapters of election and of, of sovereign, sovereign choosing and of uh, rep, uh, reprobation, that is uh, damnation and all of those things so that no one dare raise an accusing hand to God and say, how dare you? Oh, have you ever known God? Have you ever counseled God? And Isaiah asked the very same provocative questions nearly a millennia earlier. And then we see in verse 35 that who can ever give to God? And the answer is no one. Philanthropy cannot contribute to God. The most selfless person on earth cannot give God anything. In Job 41 and verse 11 speaks to that very issue that God does not owe anyone any grace or any blessing. Man is only deserving of judgment. Lamentations 3 says, if it were not for God's mercy, we'd already be consumed. But his faithfulness is new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. And so, no one can give to God. And this verse is the defining point of grace. For no one ever gave to God, resulting in God being in debt. Therefore, he gave you salvation. No, no. Grace is unmerited. In fact, while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. Even man's best efforts are counted as dung, as counted as garbage on, in the, uh, before the throne of God. We cannot do anything to merit his favor. And isn't that good? Because you don't measure up, do you? Amen? I don't measure up. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But Christ has done this for us. He has made us acceptable in the eyes of God by faith, clothed in his righteousness. But it wasn't because I ever contributed to him. In fact, uh, I tried to steal his glory and blaspheme his name and uh, uh, disobey his commands and all the rest. And yet his grace uh, was full, was abundant, and was offered. And then we see thirdly, in verse 36, this joyful exultation. And the word exultation simply means triumphant delight. Uh, it's usually spoken in reference to uh, a high achievement or attaining some type of, of victory. And it, it's what Paul says in verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Three thoughts in verse 36. First of all, it says for of him. God is the origin or the originator of all grace. It is of him. And, and quite literally, in your Greek New Testament, it has the uh, uh, prefix ek, out of. Grace is out of him. Grace flows or, uh, or is catapulted, if you will, shot out of him to a lost and dying and unbelieving world. To a sinful world, grace has been uh, released from him. It emanates from God. And folks, if that had not happened, all would be doomed. You would be condemned and you would remain condemned. But because of the grace of God, you're now accepted in the beloved. And in fact, Colossians 2 and verse 10 says, you are complete in him. You can't add anything. Nothing can be taken away because of being in Christ. It is 
of him. He is the originator of all grace. And then notice also in the, in the next part in verse 36, he's the orderer of all grace. Notice it says, for it is of him and through him. It's the, the prefix dia or dia, going through something. And it speaks of God as the one who is directing that dispensing, dispensing grace. The grace has been dispensed from him, but it's also being directed by him. Do you see that in this text? That's what Paul is saying. He says not only uh, did it come from him as the source, he is the one who is directing it. He is sending that grace wherever he pleases. In fact, uh, as I shared with Brother Jeff uh, uh, Jenerick earlier, that I, I believe that's, it was Jeff that I was talking with, John 3, 8. The Spirit of God blows where he wills. Just, uh, you and I were talking about it. He, he blows where he wills. And so it is through him. He sends it where he wants. Man cannot demand. Man do, does not deserve. And that's the nature of grace. And then thirdly, we see God is the object of all grace. So for not only is it of him and through him, but it's also to him. Now that's interesting because it speaks of he is the one who is the focal point of all grace. You thought, you said, oh, I thought it was the sinner who was the focal point. No, no. Uh, the sinner is the one who, uh, who passively sits by and, and receives the blessing. But the glory of the grace of God is unto him. You are saved not for your good, but for his glory primarily. Amen? We send out missionaries not because people are lost. Yes, they are. And we, and we do want to see them one. But we send them so that the nations may know that he is majestic and glorious. That's the motivation. That's what ought to be the thrust of all that we do and all that we're about in this place. So verse 36 is circular. Grace begins with God. It's kept alive by God and results in fruit coming back to the Lord himself. Wow. The theology of the word of God, especially in verses uh, 8 through 11, says that God has sovereignly elected to salvation. Those he elects will come to him based on his grace. Those who don't come to him are eternally responsible for remaining in sinful unbelief. You remember uh, the rich man Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. And the rich man was in hell. And he said, I deserve to be here. Uh, the, the thief on the cross, we deserve this treatment. They didn't say, well, I wasn't elect. It's not my fault. Oh, no, no, no. I remained in sinful unbelief. And if you did not remain in sinful unbelief, but you accepted the grace of God in Christ, no glory on your part. Amen. It's because of him, his kindness extended to you, which is why it closes out this doctrinal section before it gets into the practical section, chapter 12. It closes out by saying, look, look at it. To whom? And seemingly the, the, the inference is, to whom alone be glory forever, amen, or so be it. Paul concluded by saying, only God is worthy of receiving all credit, all praise, all adoration, all worship, all allegiance, 
because he alone is the originator of grace, the director of grace, and the receiving receiver of worship for what his grace has done. Folks, proper theology ought to always produce profound doxology. When I read and understand the word of God, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Genesis 1.1. And go all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. That it says the spirit and the bride say come. And whosoever is, a, is thirsty come and take of the water of life freely and live. And everywhere in between. And I understand that theology. My heart ought to swell and overflow with thank you Lord. How can this be? I don't even understand this. Your knowledge, your, 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 your dealings, your ways are past finding out. But I can sure say, to God alone be the praise. Amen, Paul said. So be it. Amen. He wrapped up the doctrinal section of the book by saying, God, you and you alone are worthy.